Hey everybody, thanks for coming to another episode of My Angular Story. I'm the host, Aaron Frost. I work with Hero Devs and NGConf. And today, uh, as our guest, we have Kevin. Can, can you go ahead and introduce yourself to everybody, Kevin? Absolutely. Hi, everybody. My name is uh, Kevin A. McGrail. I'm also known as Cam and, uh, you know, happy to be here. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. Who calls you Cam? Uh, pretty much everybody. In fact, uh, you know, I've signed that way since I was about 14 years old. In fact, my sister-in-law didn't even know my real name was Kevin uh, for about two years. Uh, she was very upset to find out that Cam was not my real name. She, she didn't know you were Kevin. No, she didn't. She, had, she just Everyone thought I was Cam. Cam. Uh, a lot of people. I respond to, to both Kevin and Cam pretty, pretty much uh, 100% equally. What about mom and dad? What does mom and dad call you? Uh, expletives usually? Uh, no, uh, yeah, Kevin. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Kevin. Okay. So mom and dad call you Kevin, but largely the rest of the world calls you Cam. All right. I get you. Um, I largely introduce myself as Aaron, but I get called frosty pretty much everywhere I go. So, um, I feel you on that one. No, absolutely. And it's, uh, it, it's, uh, you know, oftentimes a bit of a, a split personality because, uh, some people don't realize, uh, you know, like Kevin and Cam are the same person. So yeah, exactly. Yeah. So yeah. and frosty, I'm sure you have the same issue. Yeah, exact same issue. Why uh, the CEO at a company I used to work at, the CTO was like, yeah, Frosty built that. Or Aaron built that. CTO's like, who's Aaron? Or the CEO was like, who's Aaron? And uh, they were like, Frosty. He's like, oh, I didn't know Frosty's name was Aaron. So yeah, kind of the same type of scenario. Yeah. So, Cam, we... We hung out in Denver. Where else did we hung out before? Because that wasn't the first time I've seen you. Uh, you know, we we met at another, uh, I think, Google conference uh, uh, a couple of months, actually, maybe a year before that. So Okay. Which one? Uh, I don't remember. They blur after a while. I can't remember. I know they all kind of blur out. You, no, go, to, you I, go to a lot of conferences then? I go to about one a month. Oh, yeah. That's a lot. Is that, is that part of your title? Are you like DevRail? Uh, you know, it's a lot of it is, uh, you know, I'm starting to lose my eyesight. So I try and uh, do more talks so that I can get more of my knowledge out there so people can do it. And it's something I enjoy doing. So uh, it works for me and works for them. And, you know, I go all over the world talking about uh, cybersecurity, privacy issues, programming issues, Angular, uh, Google G Suite, a bunch of different topics. Yeah. Are you a GDE too? I am. I'm a Google developer expert uh, for the G Suite product platform. Oh, for the whole G Suite? No, that's huge. Yeah, it's an unusual uh, platform just because, you know, there aren't very many of us. There were originally only eight and there's now only nine. But, you know, unlike uh, yourself, who I consider to be an amazing uh, at Angular and your your work with React and, and your 
uh, programming skills, I'm much more of a generalist. I know uh, an inch wide about a, a mile wide of different products and technologies. And so, you know, the G Suite product platform, you know, encompasses, you know, about 100 products. And so yeah. I know a lot about a, a little, a little about a lot of products. Yeah, you know, you know, some of all of it. Yeah, you really have to. You yeah, know, it's a, it's what we do. So, uh, and it's very unique. There aren't even many people. Sorry, go on. No, no, go ahead. I was just going to say there aren't even many people inside of Google that that have that breadth. They they focus on their their one their one uh, area of expertise and yeah, uh, like where they develop. That's kind of what they know. Absolutely, yeah, and it's uh, so it's it's a lot of fun. It's a, it gives me a lot of ability to to. Uh, uh, to learn new things. And that's, you know, part of how I got involved in Angular because uh, I'd go crazy if I had to just support one, one product or one uh, expertise or one technology. Uh, this lets me learn new things every week, every day. Uh, and, uh, you know, impart that uh, on other people. Yeah, that's cool. I think is AppScript part of G Suite? Yeah. So Google AppScript would be counted under that. Yeah. Okay. That's probably one of the only things I would say I know from the G Suite. I don't, I'm not sure what else is counted. So, well, you probably would count more like for example, Gmail, uh, sheets, docs, all the stuff under drive is all part of G Suite as well. Uh, so, you know, there's much, much more to it, but, uh, you know, uh, additionally, there's some great stuff. Like for example, uh, even developers like yourself, uh, would really appreciate things like app maker, the low code environments, uh, for yeah. developing things. Yeah. Um, you know, so there, there's a lot that falls under the G Suite umbrella. Okay, cool. Cool, cool. Google's so big, man. It's hard to, it's hard to always know what's going on in there. You know, it's. Uh, I often refer to it with the Google Cloud Platform as the hexagons of doom because they have all those blue di uh, blue hexagons with all the products in them. And you know, I mean, there must be 150 in them. There's actually a guy who uh, just makes a brochure about describing every product under GCP in four words or less. Um, and I constantly have to turn to it because I'm like. Oh, what is a what is a steering wheel? What is a ship? What is a brain? You know, on top of the hexagons of doom to remember them all. And yeah, yeah. Uh, it's kind of humorous. I get a lot of students who come up to me. They are people that are new to the field. And they're like, I want to learn uh, Google. You know, I'm going to learn all uh, all of GCP this summer. And I, you know, I just kind of, you You're know, like cool story, bro. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, <laughs> tell it again. <laughs> yeah, GCP. That's big. I mean, from what I hear, that's probably the one of the larger angular projects in the world is that so i know that that in itself is a, is a massive beast to kind of understand i mean there's there's a number of the projects that i'm intimately familiar with the founders and you're talking several of those projects are you know decades or longer thesis level projects so uh yeah you you could pick just one of the hexagons of doom and become an expert in it and do quite well for yourself huh that's crazy. Well, that's cool. So, um, so you're, you're spread out across tons of space and you're, sounds like you're a bit of an expert in security. Is that, is that fair to say? Yeah. The cybersecurity, privacy, email security, especially are probably the, my, uh, if you ask me my number one skill, that's, that's probably where it would lie. And do you do like consulting in that area or? Absolutely. Yeah. So my day job, I work with a company called InfraShield and we do high value, high target cyber physical uh, security for critical infrastructure. And so cyber physical security is kind of an interesting word that most people don't know. Um, everybody's familiar with like IT or information technology cyber. 
Uh, we do both information technology, cyber, and OT, or which is operational technology. So we handle things like everything from your firewalls and your computers to your building access control systems and your HVAC controls. And um, because we bridge both, we're very uh, we're very unique in the cybersecurity world because that's a a big attack surface that a lot of places get hacked from. Yeah, but that probably makes you guys good that you're covering kind of both surfaces there. Yeah, well, you know, most of our work and uh, a lot of it comes out of, uh, you know, we're a bunch of Cinderella snowflakes, as I like to joke. You know, we all have our areas of expertise. And, uh, you know, so I've written policy, I've implemented policy, I've done uh, the attestation on the policy, and I've fixed and remediated when the policy wasn't followed. And there aren't a whole lot of people in the cyber world that do all those layers from writing the policy to fixing problems when when it's not followed. And so, you know, that's a lot of why I work in Angular, uh, because we bring a very process based uh, flow and, uh, you know, we apply it. And so, like, for example, with Angular uh, is one of over 40 languages that I work in. And, you know, languages to me, uh, a quote that I've said for a long time is uh, programming is a state of mind, not a language. You give me working code, give me a syntax book, give me a couple of weeks and I'll generally be up to speed on it and, you know, starting to work from there. And, you know, great programming languages like Angular from a cybersecurity standpoint, uh, Angular was written with a, a complete focus on cybersecurity when it was developed. And so you don't get kind of all of the hassles with cybersecurity you do with other programming languages, uh, but you still have a lot of the processes that, that need to be followed. So if you'll allow, I'll talk about that for a second. Like, yeah. for example, uh, the number one flaw that I see in almost every situation where I'm brought in and there's some sort of uh, cybersecurity compromise is there's a failure to have a process to go from development to quality assurance to production. That's it, you know. And so the question I usually ask people is, if there's a security issue with your program and I give you a one-line patch for it, so I give you the fix for it, how long will it take you to deploy that to production? And the shorter that answer is, the better. And so it's, you know, and you've probably heard it a billion times, you know, uh, release early, release often, have a good process for doing this. Um, yeah. You know, and then with like Angular, for example, uh, you know, the rookie mistakes that you see or that I see quite often when I'm doing cybersecurity audits of the implementation are things like uh, people have forked Angular. And when you fork it, uh, the bad part with that is you've got a backport, your changes to a new version. And so what eventually ends up happening is people stop updating their Angular because they don't want to lose all their patches that they put in. And they end yeah. up in a, in a catch-22 where, again, I talked about going from develop to QA to production. Well, now you've added a delay to getting that done when there's a security problem. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Angular... Uh, I believe the official release uh, process for it is every six months is a, a new major version. And then one to three major versions every or one to three minor versions every six months. And then a patch almost weekly, if not yeah. more than weekly. Yeah. So are often. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're, if you're forking angular, you're making a big security mistake. Um, you know, whatnot. so anyway, off my soapbox. No, it's good. It's good. Um, you know, I, I've, a couple times patched in, <clears throat> Angular, but it's like a runtime patch. I don't actually um, need to fork the source and and kind of build off of my my fork. You see that a lot more than you should because what will yeah. happen is there'll be 
what oftentimes happens is that rarely do you come into a situation where somebody had the luxury to sit down and say, I'm going to, to develop this product in Angular. What normally kind of happens is a product is like 10 years old, it goes through a refresh, they switch from something else, um, and they're looking to get more performance or they're looking to get some benefits that Angular can give them. And so they kind of add Angular to the mix. And while they're doing that, like for example, with Angular, another big mistake I see all the time is they'll use other JavaScript uh, libraries that uh, modify the DOM directly. And the minute you do that, you lose a bunch of the security benefits that Angular brings to the table inherently in its process. Um, you know, things like the, um, the ahead of time compiling versus the just in time compiling. You know, if yeah. you, if you start uh, doing the um, just in time compiling or you're modifying the DOM, you know, directly with other JavaScript libraries and things like that to achieve what you think is a good control, you're kind of destroying the, the process and the method and especially the security methods that, that are, were set up to kind of gate you away from making those rookie mistakes. Gotcha. One of the biggest pain points that I find as I talk to people about software is deployment. It's really interesting to have the conversations with people where it's, I don't want to deal with Docker. I don't want to deal with Kubernetes. I don't want to deal with setting up servers. I don't, you know, all of these different things. And in a lot of ways, DevOps has gotten a lot easier. And in a lot of ways, DevOps has also kind of embraced a certain amount of culture around applications, the way we build them, the way we deploy them. And I've really felt for a long time that developers need to have the conversations with DevOps or adopt some form of DevOps so that they can take control of what they're doing and really understand when things go to production, what's going on so that they can help debug the issues and fix the issues and find the issues when they go wrong and help streamline things and make things better and slicker and easier so that they'll more generally go right. So we started a podcast called Adventures in DevOps. And I pulled in one of the hosts from one of my favorite DevOps shows, Nell Shamrell Harrington from the Food Fight Show. And we got things rolling there. And so this is more or less a continuation of the Food Fight Show where we're talking about the things that go into DevOps. So if you're struggling with any of these operational type things, then definitely check out Adventures in DevOps. And you can find it at adventuresindevopspodcast.com. Um, it is true. I, I didn't think many people would do that. So that's, that's a little intense to think about forking Angular. I mean, you'd have to fork... At this point, you have to fork core and common and router. And like, there's, there'd be like a ton of things you'd have to fork to pin to your version, right? Like that would be... It just usually comes down to simple requests that people make. And they, you know, oftentimes from non-programmers make a request and they don't understand. And the people don't educate the people about the requests they make. And so they just go in and make the change, especially when they hire uh, consultants to do the work and the consultants just want to get it done. And they don't have to deliverable. They don't have to deliver a maintainable product. They just have to deliver a product that meets the specifications. And so they'll take whatever shortcuts they can. Um, not everybody, but I mean, it's a, yeah, yeah. It's kind of, but, but the question I posited earlier, you know, is a question you should ask on every project you have is what, what process do I have to go from develop to QA to production? And how long will it take me to do that on every project? And that, that typically is the first question I ask when I'm setting up a new project, because I want to have a develop environment. I want to have that QA environment. I want to know who's a, who's responsible for signing off on the QA, who's responsible for going to production. And then there's other things that that spin off that. Like for example, 
do you have a process to back out? You know, what happens if the release isn't working right and you need to revert back to an older code? Um, yeah. You know, and what happens if your deployment process has updated an SQL database, um, you know, with a different structure? Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. Then how do you how do you backtrack from this? So uh, there's a, a lot of things involved in this that aren't really program specific or, you know, Google or Angular specific. Uh, they're just good processes. Yeah, um, big process oriented stuff. Yeah. And, and, you know, like release early release often, you know, that has nothing to do with Angular. But if you can, if you have that process in place, uh, you'll be in good shape. You know, good, uh, you know, test driven development. I love that. You know, if you've got good tests that you're writing before you've even started doing it, uh, ties into, you know, what's, what's the number one problem I see in code? Usually, regardless of programming language, it will come down to input validation where people trust what a user is plugging in or they trust that they're, uh, that the mechanisms they put in place to restrict garbage or even uh, malevolence, the word I'm thinking of, that's the wrong word, but, you know, malicious uh, injection of code. Yeah, Yeah, nefarious intentions. And, you know, if you sit there and just start with the fact that you're doing input validation on everything, you're sanitizing everything, uh, you'll do a lot better. Um, It's one of those areas of code that I refer to as the the Sour Patch Kids because uh, they have this commercial about Sour Patch Kids where they're like, you know, they're sour when you first eat them, but then they're sweet on the inside. And there's certain things that come into that, like regular expressions. They're really a pain to learn. The, the people don't understand why they need to learn them. Uh, but once you've learned them, my gosh, you'll never, you'll never regret it ever. And it's such a core uh, thing for input validation to just know basic regular expressions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can do a lot with very little, right? Uh, absolutely. And, you know, the thing is with a lot of uh, regular expressions, I end up with what I refer to as recipes that I just go back to my cookbook all the time. And rarely am I kind of reinventing the wheel. It's, there's probably 50 or so that I use all the time. And, you know, some of the basic ones, like, is this a valid email address? That's a really simple, that's a very, very complicated regular expression, but, you know, it's been solved a billion times uh, by people out there and things like that. But you see it done wrong yeah. you know, all the time. You know, it, you can put a space in something or, uh, you know, something even more malicious on the code and things start bouncing and you can't figure out what's going on. Yeah. So yeah. you said something earlier that it sounded like you know way more about than me and I want, I want to ask you to talk about it. You said... Angular was built with like security in mind. And then you talked about it releases often and has a lot of security updates. Is there, is there other things about Angular that would make it like arguably more security focused than its competitors? So um, I would say yes. So the first thing is, you know, like I, like I mentioned, it was, it was very much designed. um, You know, they wanted to build, uh, you know, what they called a front end, component-based framework written in TypeScript. You know, that was the, that was the main thing. But, um, you know, at that time, there were a whole bunch of front-end technologies that existed. And a lot of them really had security problems. Everything from cross-site scripting to sensitive data disclosure. And so Angular set, uh, set out to solve those issues from day one. And it wanted to make that, uh, you know, a security first as the consideration. So, they automatically did things like they they worked with uh, OWASP XSS prevention cheat sheet that uh, they did in uh, you know from day one and you know pretty much like for example if you're going to get a cross-site scripting um, exploit in Angular 
you're going to have to disable um, some some of the built-in security uh, implementations or mechanisms to do that. So they did that from from really day one. And uh, you know, so you know, like that's one of the other things that I would talk about. Like if you know, like React, for example, um, I know you speak sometimes using React in your presentations, and I applaud that because I think a lot of times React is the right solution for the problem at hand. Uh, but uh, you know, if I was to be simplistic. Uh, I use the analogy that Angular is a BMW and React is a bicycle. There are plenty of times when a bicycle is the right vehicle to get you where you need to go. And there's other times when you need a BMW. Um, and so Angular, where it really shines, I think, is it has a steep learning curve. It has a way it wants you to do things. It has security mechanisms set in. Um, and where that's good is Let's say you're working on a big project and you've got, you know, 40 programmers. They're all going to be kind of forced to do things in a very consistent way because of the way the Angular kind of boxes you in to do things. React. TypeScript, right? Angular, and TypeScript. TypeScript. Yeah, and TypeScript, yeah. Whereas, like, you know, if you were using React, you know, there's a thousand ways to skin a cat. And, you know, all of them achieve the end job, but will all of them be consistent? Will all of them be easily understood by the 39 other programmers uh, without having to really dive into how you're doing things? So, um, yeah, so that, you know, Angular had the benefit of learning from from the other uh, front-end uh, implementations that were out at the time. Yeah, that's cool. I think a lot of us get into these conversations um, where sometimes people are still defending their framework. Um, and uh, I mean, you see it regularly on Twitter. It's always nice to have some sort of tangible explanation about, well, Angular's got this. So I really appreciate your insight on too. Absolutely. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of like, for example, if you ask me my number one favorite programming language, it's Perl. But Perl from a commercial standpoint is largely, uh, you know, out of the, you know, out of the mind of most people. It's, it's not a, a modern programming language. Uh, still love it. But, you know, I can almost point to the day when they decided not to include uh, database uh, drivers in the core of Perl. And because they said, oh, people can write modules for that. And at the same time, almost concurrently, PHP decided to put, uh, you know, SQL drivers directly into the core. And so PHP largely became a much more popular programming language because you could pretty much install it, connect to a database, and have it integrated in Apache web server in a few seconds. Whereas with Perl, you had to figure out which driver to install. Uh, there were oftentimes multiple, you had to figure out which one worked and which one was better and why. Uh, you had to write code to get it to work. Um, right. And you had to do work to get it in. And so maybe a week later, you had it integrated into Apache and connecting to your database. Whereas in seconds, yeah. you were done in PHP. Yeah. Doesn't mean PHP is a better programming language, but it's it learned from the problems of its predecessors. And so, Angular, especially from a security standpoint, learn from the security considerations uh, that other like places were fighting. Maybe what you're saying is, as a language, Perl might be su superior, right? And that's, I guess that's subjective, but as a platform, um, when they changed their platform to exclude that and PHP included it, the PHP platform came uh, a bit more, I don't know, well-featured. Yeah, it just it became lower hurdles for people to use it. And, you know, so as you said, better is subjective. So 
what is better in a programming language. Um, you know, there's yeah. plenty of solutions I see all the time, but there's only 12 people in the world that know how to work with them. So, you know, if I'm trying to scale up a real uh, a programming and hire a hundred developers to work on it, I'm probably not going to look at a programming language that only has 12 people that know how to use it or yeah, framework yeah. that only 12 people know how to use it or, um, anyway, so yeah, ubiquity is, is itself, um, a big driving factor in programming languages and you got to have people working on the bugs and, and adding new features and things like that. So if there's a relatively easy way for people to get involved in doing that, that's one of the things I look to see. So let's, let's switch gears a little bit as you're, as you're traveling around and giving talks, what do you, what do you, sounds like you talk about security the most. What else do you talk about? Oh, I, I talk about a lot of things. So I've been very proud to be involved with the Apache Software Foundation for a long time. I've served as an executive officer, a VP of fundraising, release manager, et cetera there. Uh, so I really like talking about open source software um, and how I think it's changed the world. You know, uh, Apache and the OSI are both turning 20 years old this year. And, um, you know, the last 20 years is, has really changed how people compute. I'm very proud of that. I talk a lot about entrepreneurialism, so I enjoy running businesses, I enjoy helping other people run businesses, and uh, just learning how to do that. Uh, financial literacy, um, you know, cybersecurity, of course, is, is something I can always talk about. Uh, but, you know, there's a number of topics. I actually uh, rarely do the same talk twice. I actually hate being asked to come back and do the same talk, so I try and do a different talk for every single time I talk. That's difficult. Anyone who talks knows that that's not easy to do. Yeah, but see, I, I only hold to the fact that at least 50% of what I say is true. So it's a very low bar to meet. I suppose, uh, I suppose we all probably meet that bar, but you're, you're at least being upfront about it, right? Absolutely. Well, you know, I, I use Venn diagrams sometimes to describe myself. And one of the reasons I talk about is, you know, if you want to be good in cybersecurity, you need to think evilly. You need to try and, and think about what bad actors are going to do, hopefully before they try it. And so I generally explain to people that I'm 95% good, I'm 3% altruistic, and I'm 2% evil. Um, but I use that 2% evilness to, to hopefully try and, uh, you know, make the world a little bit of a safer cybersecurity place. No, that's good. Adventures in Angular is a devchat.tv production made in partnership with Hero Devs. Hero Devs is a group of Angular experts who can help your team code like true developer heroes. If your team needs an Angular expert, reach out to Aaron at hero.dev today. So on the topic of cybersecurity, I guess, I don't know how this has little to do with the podcast, but I'm going to ask you since you're kind of an expert. Um, so the other day, like last week, there was a, there was an article that, where they were talking about how Google had used a quantum computer. They they had a quantum. I didn't even know those. I didn't even know we had quantum computers. To be honest, I was kind of shocked. Yeah, the the exact phrase is they reached quantum supremacy, which means that a quantum computer was as fast or faster than a current transistor based solution. Yeah, well, they not not only did they reach supremacy, they they had it calculate this. There's this algorithm that calculates the true randomness of random numbers. And supposedly that takes 10,000 years to calculate on a, a non quantum computer on a transistor based computer, but they, they were able to execute the, the algorithm. I think it was either two minutes and 30 seconds or three minutes and 20 seconds. I mean, it relatively 
like almost instantly by compared to the 10,000 years it would have taken. And that kind of got us thinking at work. We're like, well, if you could really calculate that much stuff that fast, is the web even secure anymore? Like you at that point, you have enough computing power to decrypt every single packet coming across the network. Like encryption wouldn't help anymore. Yeah. So quantum based encryption is, is a whole new realm that we're going to need. I mean, if you, yeah. it generally, if you look back, it's, it's, I'm sure it's hyperbolic on, um, the, the graph, you know, if we go back less than 20 years, we were happy to use, you know, MD five with X number of bits, uh, in its, uh, you know, algorithm. Nowadays, we're looking at things like SHA-256 and SHA-512. But as you point out, you know, as programming gets uh, faster, as the computers get more available, and things like Google Cloud, um, you know, have really brought a lot of processing power to bear that, you know, didn't exist, you know, 10 years ago, where you could put, you know, parallel processing on, on these problems of just gargantuan scale for pennies on the dollar of what it used to cost. Yeah. Uh, yeah, th those, are, those are significant fears. And so... Um, yeah, I think uh, you're you're bringing up a good point. You know that the encryption's got to catch up with that, uh, and that's why a lot of times, for example, I tell people you can't rely solely on encryption. You've got to rely rely on uh, other methods, um, other you know, like multi-factor authentication. You know, a physical token on on top yeah. of a password, on top of a PIN, etc. We were I was trying to think of the world where quantum solutions were real and um, ex usable. And security was not impossible, but different. And I'm like, imagine if every time you went to send an email or read an email or open a new tab or anything, you had to like sit there and multi-factor off on all that stuff. Like that would get, that would get old and monotonous. I'm trying to think of a world, like how, what's the next security protocol going to look like? And I don't really, I don't really see it. But that's no, what I'm asking you. What do you think it's going to be? <laughs> Oh, I don't know. It's it's definitely going to evolve. I mean, you think about the security uh, that's existed. I mean, even things that you know, like the Caesar cipher, those were originally real encryption methods involving writing on pieces of paper that were then wrapped around, I believe, the batons of like the generals. And so that's why the generals had batons of a certain size so that the Caesar cipher would do the offset as they wrapped the, the scroll around the uh, around the baton, things like that, you know. So we've seen encryption for thousands of years now, and, you know, it'll continue to evolve and continue to get stronger, and it'll be a cat and mouse game, you know, forever. I don't think anybody who ever says that something's, uh, you know, unhackable or un undecryptable is just, uh, you know, you're playing a time game almost always. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The comments don't make sense across time. I agree. Yeah, I, um, I certainly can't think of one where somebody has said, oh, that's not been decrypted. So, yeah, that's crazy. That's a, it's an interesting world to uh, to live in. That's cool. You're there. Well, I, uh, I I had another question. You said as you get older, your vision started to go away. Is that affecting your your talk titles? Are you talking about that and raising awareness about that? Or, or how are you helping on that front? So that's a good question. So um, I've actually done an entire slide deck. I've actually been invited to come up and talk to a book company about writing a book about it. Um, I have a rare, very rare disorder. And uh, I wrote an entire kind of presentation of, around uh, being sick in business. And, you know, I was running a startup at the time and, you know, what parachutes worked, what parachutes failed uh, as I started getting ill and how did it affect the company? How did it affect my employees? 
Uh, so yeah, I'm trying to help from things like, uh, you know, how other entrepreneurs can learn from the problems I went through and hopefully have a little bit better. Uh, I also sit on the board of an organization called the Dysautonomia uh, Support Network. Um, so I try and help other people that are suffering from similar, uh, you know, disorders and things like that. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, you know, you can probably imagine, um, it's very difficult for me to find things like uh, a semicolon out of place, which is like the bane of most programming languages yeah. or a, a slash. And if you've ever had a, uh, a screen reader read out code to you, um, mm -hmm. it's quite, uh, quite painful to think about things like, you know, dollar sign, variable name, dash, angle bracket, you know, squiggly, tick mark, you know, variable yeah. name, tick mark, you know, all the various syntax that's used out there can be, and you're trying to figure out where there's an unbalanced apostrophe somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. You it, have to, you have to cue the apostrophe up in your head when it reads it to you to know when the closing apostrophe or whatever should happen. Yeah. And I'm very blessed because I was uh, perfectly sighted. And so I have a lot of experience on where things will be most likely and that, you know, if you see an unbalanced apostrophe, it's somewhere above that. It could be a thousand lines above that or something like that where it's messing up the code. Um, so, you know, not to like hyper focus on a specific section, but yeah. it's kind of like shopping. You know, I know what a spice bottle looks like, but I can't read a spice bottle. Yeah. So yeah. I, I, you know, so finding a specific spice is very, very difficult for me. But finding uh, the spices is not. Yeah. Cause I know they'll be in the baking section. I know they're in this area and I know what a McCormick bottle looks like. Uh, so things like that. So uh, it takes me a little longer, but you know, I try and uh, I try and do a little bit more planning, a little bit more program management, uh, things like that for other people to do more of the the new weeds work. That's great. That's cool. I like to see people who share their personal challenges and their passions um, in their talks and stuff. I was at a I was at a talk the other day, and the speaker she announced that she was starting a new meetup for programmers with mental health issues and um she was super brave and i was like wow that's awesome that she's started a meetup for this um so that's cool that uh that you're you got carrying the torch on helping people be aware that you know things are different when when you can't uh are, when you can't see you know pixel perfect representations of the code so that's cool yeah no thank you i i, I try my best yeah well uh, good. Um, so, um, some people may have questions for you. They may, um, they may, may want to follow up with you. What's the best way for people to get hold of you? So I love LinkedIn. Um, you can find me there. I'm under Kevin A. McGrail. Um, my, I think my LinkedIn profile is just linkedin.com slash I N slash K McGrail, K M C G R A I L. And, uh, you know, just tell me you heard me here and you have a question. I'm pretty, uh, pretty open responding and pretty timely on it. Cool. So everyone, if you have questions for Kevin, jump over to, or Cam, jump over to uh, LinkedIn and, and uh, drop him a line there. Cool. Well, let's, uh, let's move on to the picks section. All right. I had a pick. What was my pick? Yeah. You went to a whole thing to try and think of it before Remember we started. I was like, Hey, we can't start. So I get my pick. All right. So my pick is uh, there's a package it's called Angular Pre-Render. It's out on NPM. And it attempts to smartly look at your project and see the routes that you have defined in your project. And um, 
if any of the routes don't have like inline variables, right? Like it's actually a static route. Um, it will make a list of those and then it will start your app up. It will crawl your app, pre-rendering it and saving out the pre-rendering. And it will kind of static generate um, the routes that it can, it can statically generate and give you kind of a, I don't know, an HTML uh, base version of your website, which I think that's pretty cool that they, uh, that they built that project. I can see this turning eventually into something like a Gatsby, but uh, yeah, cool project, Angular pre-render. So head out there and check it out if you have any need for something like that. So that's my pick. I'll put it in the show notes. Uh, Cam, you, did you get a chance to find a pick? I know I kind of dropped that on you at the last minute. You know, I didn't think of one. I, I will say that I love the concepts that you're talking about. Pre-rendering and even rendering down to a static HTML can be really, really helpful, uh, especially with like security issues or even basic things. Like, you know, we talked about that going from uh, develop to QA to production. Well, you know, a lot of times you need a maintenance page for your site that says, hey, you know, we're undergoing maintenance. We're down for a little bit. Uh, it's really awesome if you have the ability to just kind of throw something up there that that looks nice and looks just like your normal program. Yeah. Uh, you know, and if you can you can run it all, you know, things like that. Uh, you know, you also have less surface area to attack from a security standpoint. So, so something to think about. Um, but I would say, you know, my biggest pick uh, for people right now would be, you know, you know, learn about regular expressions. If you don't know regular expressions, go spend some time on them. There's some great history behind them. One of the stories that I just learned with uh, with uh, regular expressions. Um, have you heard of the program GREP? GREP? Yeah. 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 Of okay. Course. Do you know what it stands for? No, I don't. So I just learned uh, what it stood for. It stands for global slash regular expression slash print. And so if you've ever used editors like VI or ed going back even older than VI, yeah. you could do a global command with a slash and then you could put a regular expression in the middle of it and you could do print. And so way back when um, they, this gentleman wanted to use regular expressions to analyze the uh, writing patterns of authors. And he had these gigantic files that he wanted to uh, search with regular expressions across. And these things were so big, they were a meg in size. <laughs> yeah, which back then that was huge. Yeah, that was huge. And so the the documents that he was searching uh, were actually the Federalist Papers, which were written by people like Alexander Hamilton. I think Burr wrote some. Uh, don't quote me on that. But huh. the the point was is that several of these the authors are known, and several of them the authors were not known. And so he wanted to use regular expressions to search them. And so. Uh, the authors of Ed, um, ED, which was the precursor to VI, um, stripped all the code for regular expressions and searching out of Ed and put it into its own command called grep. And so that way the person could grep the files uh, with regular expressions and use that to then identify the unknown authors of the Federalist Papers. Wow. That's, uh, that's, some, that's some pretty... Uh, Savvy way to try and work your way into who wrote that stuff. Well, and you know, that technique has been used uh, quite a bit. You know, they've used this with quite a, to figuring out the authors of quite a few of these anonymous books that get put on the New York Times and people come out with lists of who they think the top five most likely authors are. Uh, and a lot of times they're doing writing analysis and regular expressions analysis. So, huh. It's kind of some cool technical kind of forensics going on there, huh? 
Yep, absolutely. So my number one pick is, uh, you know, it's it's a cybersecurity pick, but learn regular expressions and, and spend some time figuring out them. Because if you can do better input validation, you will have, uh, you know, a much better security posture. In the end. Great. Regular expression, everybody. Cool. Well, um, before we end, I'm going to I'm going to say, hey, Kevin, don't forget to uh, submit a talk idea to ng-conf and to the listeners also uh, talk. The call for papers for ng-conf is open, so get out there. If you have any ideas, submit them. If you have any questions, we're going to have an office hours on Monday, October 14th. Um, and if if you listen to this after then, you can go on our YouTube channel, the ng-conf YouTube channel, and watch it. We'll be answering a lot of questions people will have about what they should they submit, what shouldn't they submit, stuff like that. So, yeah, just kind of awareness around the call for papers. Get out there um, and uh, submit your talks and, and get your tickets to the conference too. So, All right, um, Kevin, gracious guest. Thank you for coming on, man. Thanks for taking a few uh, 45 minutes and, and chatting with me. Absolutely. Thank you, Aaron, for having me. And I hope to see a lot of you at uh, AngularCon. Yeah. And then for the listeners, I will say thank you and we'll see you next time. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.